2: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
3: This show has, of course, been going since January of 2006 on successive platforms. But this is by far and away the biggest jet, and it's the one on which we intend and hope to stay. Now, it's general election time, so, of course, a terrorist murderer ran amok on London Bridge, just like in 17. This time there was only one of them, uh, but the method of operation, modus operandi, was strikingly similar. Even a white truck strewn, spread-eagled across London Bridge, though that was only as it turned out because the driver had been told by the police to abandon it there and it handily blocked off one side of the bridge, Uh, but the madcap murderer had two large kitchen knives duct-taped to both of his hands to make it more difficult for him to drop them or someone to take them. It's reported that he had a gun in his bag and strapped around his waist was what looked uh, for all the world like a suicide vest, which makes all the more extraordinary the have-a-go heroes, five I think of whom, set about this man with a small two-metre tusk of a whale that they had seized from the wall of the fishmonger's hall where this incident started with fire extinguishers and with their own bare hands. They grappled this murderer who'd Already killed a young man and a young woman, fine young people from Cambridge University, dedicating their lives to the rehabilitation of offenders, making life better for people in prison. He'd ordered them and was on his way to find anyone else that he could murder. But these heroes grappled them to the ground, and one of them took the knives out of his hands, ripped off the tape and got the offensive weapons away, leaving, of course, the suicide belt. I think we should pay tribute to the Metropolitan Police Firearms Squad for the speed and skill with which they dispatched this terrorist murderer. The only good ISIS terrorist is a dead ISIS terrorist. I've been saying that for many years including when the British government, successive British governments were doing everything they could to help ISIS win their wars in places like Syria. So the police did a fine job. It's exactly what we expect from them. And for those who say it was a summary execution or that the man's civil liberties to a trial were somehow denied by the police action, I say Boulder Dash, Worse than Balderdash. The police were not to know that this suicide vest was a fake one. They therefore risked their lives entirely in approaching him closely enough to shoot him dead. And hallelujah, they did. And may he now burn for eternity in hell. But the big questions that remain unanswered are these. Why was Usman Khan, the terrorist murderer, would-be, mass murderer? Why was he released from prison? The original trial judge who tried him and the rest of his then Al-Qaeda cell, ISIS hadn't been born yet, though they have now claimed responsibility for the two murders and the other injuries that took place last Friday the terrorist cell then belonging to Al-Qaeda were sentenced by the judge to an indeterminate sentence. That is to say that they must be kept in prison if necessary for the rest of their lives until and unless they could prove to the state that they were no longer a danger to the public. And that is where the story should have ended. And if it had ended, Osman Khan would have been long forgotten and rotting away in a prison cell, which is where he deserved to be. By the way, the Al-Qaeda cell in question planned to blow up the city of London, the houses of Parliament, and murder political leaders, including now Prime Minister, then Mayor of London, Boris Johnson. Why then, on appeal, was that sentence cut to 16 years? And an even bigger why was this man released not even halfway through that sentence. Early attention went to the parole board, but the parole board were quick off the mark to say nothing at all to do with us. We have never considered this man's case. It turns out, He was automatically released, not at halfway, but less than halfway, through a sentence that had originally been indeterminate. In other words, potentially a whole life sentence. Automatically, he was released. Well, they say he agreed to put on an electronic tag. But what is the point of an electronic tag? if it isn't being monitored. And I presume it wasn't being monitored because he, presto, the man who planned to blow up the city of London, back in the city of London, on the very bridge within a few hundred yards of the very buildings he had been planning to blow sky high, which got him the jail sentence of indeterminate in the very first place. So my question is, of course, on the proximate issues involved. Why? Why was he there? Why was he able to be there? Why was he released from prison? And all of that. But you can't avoid the deeper question. If Osman Khan had strapped those knives to his wrists, and packed his gun in his bag and headed instead for Syria. Well, the British government, successive British governments, would probably have paid his fare because these last years are not yet over. British and other Western governments have been facilitating precisely the kind of people with precisely the same. Ideology and precisely the same death cult modus operandi of cutting people's throats and cutting their hearts out, knifing them, crucifying them, beheading them, and we've been supporting them. So it's not very credible, you know, to oppose Al Qaeda and ISIS on London Bridge, but to support them in Aleppo and Damascus. And I'm coming out fighting on this point because at the time of the last election, I was less than a mile away from the mass murder of innocents in the Manchester arena, carried out by another ISIS al-Qaeda affiliate who was part of a community of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group the clue was in the name, who were facilitated by the British government to go to Libya on the immoral principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend. But your enemy's enemy is sometimes worse than your enemy, even uglier, even more repellent. Worse when you've strengthened your enemy's enemy once he's either won or been defeated, against your original enemy is coming back home to you. Now my last point on this subject is this. I make no generic criticism, of course, of the intelligence services. I'm sure that they have many fine people working very hard foiling many such plots of Islamist terror in London and elsewhere in Britain. But I've gotta tell you, a staggering number of these terrorist murderers have already been on TV. They've already appeared on reality programs, including this maniac, Usman Khan. I can watch the videos of the original London Bridge guys from 2017, and this one. They've given umpteen interviews demonstrating beyond contradiction the kind of people that they are. So I've got to ask this question. If the security services are not following these people, who are they following? Because one after the other after the other of these Islamist TV reality show stars has ended up dead on the streets of London, having killed many other people before themselves, succumbing. And what about this Anjum Chowdhury? He seems to me the spider at the center of the web. All of these people are his acolytes. I hope we're keeping a close la- a- a- eye on him. And why not treat it as inherently more than suspicious if you are in the orbit of this mastermind, Anjum Chowdhury, I don't know quite why, he also is at liberty, him also having had his sentence cut. We'll be taking calls on all of the London Bridge issues, of course, uh, throughout the show. Donald Trump arrives in, uh, I think, less than 48 hours, maybe just over 24 hours from now, the Trump will have landed. He's here for a NATO summit. If I was pushed to find a bigger waste of time and money, it would be, in the middle of a British general election, hosting a NATO summit, and especially one where the starring role is to be played by Donald J. Trump. What is NATO even for? You may well ask yourself. Because NATO was set up to confront a geopolitical challenge, an existential challenge, from the Soviet Union and at the end of the war in 1945. But communism has been 39 years dead. The Soviet Union no longer exists. All of its former satellite states are either in NATO or trying to get into NATO. What is the point of this NATO? And what role is Donald Trump going to play in the general election campaign. I'm willing to bet that Boris Trump, who has drawled his way, sometimes looking like he's brawled his way, through yet another week of Britain's general election and he's bound to be extremely worried about what Donald Trump is going to say or do whilst in England that might affect adversely his chances of forming a majority government after December the 12th. Johnson is now speaking literally robot. It is impossible to discern human speak in what it is that he's saying on interview after interview. Talk about autopilot. Talk about merely uh, a speak your weight machine. And by the way, Boris, whatever happened, to that diet that you were going on? Whatever happened to that no more booze for the rest of the general election? Because you look to me like a man that slept in his car after a night on the tiles. And I don't understand a word that you are saying. And I'm amazed at how bad you are, Mr. Johnson. I'm really amazed at it. Is that what you get for all the expensive education that you have had at Eton, at Oxford? In the Bullingdon Club, I'm surprised whatever charm you've got has taken you so far. Opinion polls, though, show him very clearly on track for a majority on December the 12th, and we need to talk about why that might be. We need to talk about why Labour, with its bumper giveaway manifesto, is not making any appreciable dent. There is one opinion poll that shows Labour closing the gap to six points. It's not exactly narrow, but six points. And there's only nine days to go, Uh, I think, 10 days maybe uh, to go. Uh, But the average of the last six polls puts the Tories well over 10 points ahead, in one case, 12 points, all of which add up to a Tory victory. And we need to know why. I'll be talking to Professor Steve Hall in the course of the uh, show about my thesis, which is about the embourgeoisification of the so-called left and the proletarianization of the so-called right and what that means for the future. The German government, as I speak, is now hanging by threads because the German Social Democrats, the SPD, have elected two people, seems to be some kind of job share, uh, as their new leaders and those new leaders want to break with Merkel's coalition. So it might be that Germany is in the throes of a general election pretty soon also. And lastly, of course, we simply cannot get away from the Jeffrey Epstein affair. The young lady that alleges that Prince Andrew thrice had sex with her when she was a trafficked minor in the United States and when she was a mere 17-year-old girl here in London, which would not have been illegal, but would be a pretty ropey thing to do, especially as that girl had been procured for you, not because she loved you, not because she thought you were uh, fine and dandy, but because Ghislaine Maxwell procured her for you. She's giving an interview on Britain's television tomorrow evening, and that story is like to take another sinister Turn At this rate, Andrew will be working in that famous Pizza Express down in Woking before very much longer. We've got a poll. Poll number one. What's the best counter-terrorism measure? A, build a wall. B, launch a war. C, stop arming terrorists. You can now vote on my Twitter feed. Now on the line from the United States. He's got a new book out. And we're looking for orders for pre-sales. It's called Bullet Points and Punchlines. And it has a foreword by the legendary Chris Hedges. He is, of course, Lee Camp, a comedian, a presenter, a writer, an activist, and one of the very best men in the United States of America. I missed your stand-up show because I was on the air last time. Don't make it a Sunday night. Next time, Lee, welcome to the show.
4: Lee, are you there? Thank you for having me, and congrats. Congrats That's on your cyber attack.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a badge of honor, Lee. If you've not been cyber attacked, you're not doing any useful work. Unfortunately.
4: (laughs) Exactly, exactly.
3: Yeah, I mean, the reality is, Donald Trump's arriving here on Tuesday for a NATO summit about what exactly? What is NATO for? What's Donald Trump for?
4: Well, yeah, I, I, clearly they're having issues. And I think that the the problem is that the U.S. hegemonic adventurism has even gone too far for NATO, even though NATO has been involved in many of our uh, invasions and attacks in the past. I mean, I, I think a lot of you know, especially Americans look at NATO as this war legitimizing body that if it's a good war, then. But in in my view, that's just the Christmas wreath on the front of the pedophile's home. You know, it, it it sits there and everyone goes, oh well, that must mean it's a good thing. But it, it it you look in the basement and these, you know, what what was done to Libya, being led by France and the U. S. with NATO's backing, was just taking one of the most developed countries in Africa and turning it into a smoldering pile of warring factions, so to act like these are somehow good wars is, is just g- repulsive and, and wrong.
3: There's a, there is a division opening up uh, between some of the NATO powers and the United States. Of that, there's no doubt. I mentioned Macron uh, again. Uh, he declared yesterday, I think, the day before maybe, that w- Russia is no longer our enemy, Uh, Now, that's quite a striking statement to make on the eve of a NATO summit. Are people in the United States aware uh, that the long alliance with many uh, of uh, America's ancient partners, I mean, the Statue of Liberty uh, came from the French to you, uh, are people in America aware of this breach which is opening up?
4: No, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen it. Maybe some are, but, uh, you know, our mainstream media. is. Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live. From
2: ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
5: Wow. Nice. Yeah.
6: What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
4: So caught up with nothing but uh, impeachment hearings 24-7 or, you know, still the McCarthyism that... That was with the the RussiaGate uh, hilarious uh, you know sketch comedy they did. Uh, I I don't think they've gotten the word that that Macron said Russia is not the enemy because if you look at what our you know Democrats in this country and our mainstream media is pushing Russia is very much the enemy and uh, you know we have to use NATO to continue to combat Russia. Um, so I I don't know I don't know that Americans really uh, see that this rift is coming but. Considering how much war America wants to continue to have around the world, it it makes sense that the other NATO countries might lose their appetite for that.
3: Now, how virulent still is this Russiagate uh, hoax in the United States? One thought that it was going to run out of steam uh, with the, the damp squib of the Mueller report, but it appears to have got a new lease of life with... Just rebadged. It's no longer Russia Gate, but the Ukraine Gate.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> I, I think they're, they're, our mainstream media is uh, is using the fact that most Americans don't know the difference between Russia and Ukraine <laughs> to their benefit. So, uh, so they they use that to continue the the neo-McCarthyism. And you know, the scientific studies have shown that people, over a given enough time and, and enough repetition, confuse familiarity with truth. So if you just hear Russiagate over and over and over again, you assume that something was found monstrous in those pages of the when they failed to find collusion and when uh, Mueller went in front of Congress and failed to present any case whatsoever. Uh, people confuse familiarity with truth. So the mainstream media is continuing to repeat it uh, in the midst of the impeachment hearings as if that that you know uh, the the Mueller report proved something dastardly about uh, Trump and Russia.
3: No, uh, of course, sixty uh, percent of Americans believed that Saddam Hussein had played a part in bringing down the twin towers on nine eleven. Uh, so <laughs> that's true. Uh, if you're going to tell a lie, make it a very big one and uh, endlessly repeat it, and perhaps sufficient numbers of people will uh, believe it. But Trump doesn't look all that troubled to me. Is there not an argument uh, for saying that most Americans are not focused when it comes to voting for the next president uh, on the obscurities of Joe Biden's obscure coke-sniffing son and more on their uh, their own pensions, their own wages, the strength of the U.S. economy and so on?
4: Yeah, I mean, as much as I hate Trump, Trump does know how to talk to what many Americans uh, continue to be concerned about. He, he he convinces them their problems are immigrants, and he talks to that. He speaks to their jobs. He speaks to the economy. Um, whereas the Democrats it, it's, and, and much of our mainstream media have just set themselves up perfectly to lose this next election again to Donald Trump. I mean, they've created... An hearing that will indict uh, Joe Biden as much as, as it could possibly indict Donald Trump for being corrupt. So, you know, their, their so-called frontrunner is collapsing more every day. They have, they, they have undermined the true left in the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders. They either don't speak about him or when they do, they try to uh, act like he's some sort of maniac you know, who wants to steal your, your, your money from everybody in America. And uh, they've put forward these pathetic, uh, limp uh, candidates, the mainstream candidates like Buttigieg and and Amy Klobuchar and stuff, who who seem to have no hope against a a Donald Trump who may be lying to the American people, but at least he's speaking to what they actually care about.
3: Now, uh, I'm very clear. If uh, if Bernie Sanders is not his opponent, uh, then Trump will beat like a drum any of these other Democrats that uh, are put in front of him. But it, it continues to astonish me that Biden can be the, still the front runner. Uh, I saw him on television today, despite all the creepy Joe uh, suspicions about him, saying how much he loved it when children on the campaign trail uh, bounced over and, uh, and bounced into his lap.
4: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you can't watch Joe Biden for more than thirty seconds without being amazed that our, our, it's really our ruling elite and the media, the Democrats, try, are continuing to try and push him forward. I mean, it's true. Weekend at Bernie stuff. This guy is a, a dead man walking. His his teeth are falling out on stage, literally. His one of his eyes exploded in one of the debates. Um, And they and he he must be on some sort of prescription meds that make him clearly loopy. And yet uh, they keep trying to push this forward because they have nothing else. They don't. The Democrat, the Democratic elites don't speak to the working people. They don't care. They don't know the average American. And so they're just putting pushing forward what they view as a continuance of the Obama administration. But, you know, Biden has a, a list I mean, from his racism to his touching women problems to his uh, corruption in Ukraine, it, he, the list of, of problems with Biden is, is just incredible.
3: Yeah, uh, and his false teeth shooting out across the studio floor is just the uh, least of them. Now, your, uh, your book, it's, it's simply uh, irresistible. Bullet points and punchlines and Chris Hedges. You've got Lee Camp and Chris Hedges and bullet points and punchlines. Tell us something about it, will you?
4: Oh, thank you. Yeah, and the intro by Jimmy Dore, too. I tried to put together a power team there. Uh, It it is Now, that uh, is a triptych.
3: That is a triptych. Jimmy Dore, Chris Hedges and Lee Camp in the same book.
4: (laughs) Thank you, sir. Uh, Not since peace,
3: land and bread has there been a (laughs) triptych like it. (laughs)
4: <laughs> man i, I should add you wrote the intro thank you uh it, it it is uh many of my truth dig columns are written for truth dig uh it addresses everything from uh the, the 21 trillion dollars that has gone unaccounted for at the pentagon over the past 20 years to uh the endless coups that the u.s promotes around the world um i really tried to hit a little bit of everything and so it's it's a li- you know, as is my, my brand, it's a little bit of comedy so that you can laugh instead of cry, uh, but plenty of truth in there as well.
3: I definitely will be amongst the first buyers this side of the pond. How do people order it?
4: Uh, it's LeeCampBook.com, and the, uh, the title is Bullet Points and Punchlines, and it's by PM Press.
3: Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Lee. Sorry about the Skype I always like to gaze upon you when I'm hearing your words of wisdom and indeed hilarity. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, I uh, coined a phrase early in this general election campaign. It was when I talked about the bourgeoisification of the left and the proletarianization of the right, only to discover that my next guest has been preaching and teaching and writing about this precise phenomenon for some considerable uh, time. He is the Emeritus Professor of Criminology, Steve Hall, and he's written a wonderful article called Back to the Future on the British Liberal Left's Return to its Origins. Professor Hall is on the line now. Professor, welcome. Hi, George. Nice to to talk to you again. Yes,
7: yes. It's a while since I've seen you. Are you okay?
3: Yeah, by the grace of God, I'm good, and I'm uh, daily experiencing uh, the precise thing that you and I are both uh, talking about. But you go first. Summarize your article for us, will you?
7: Well, I could have called it We Was Robbed, you know, because the, the, since the, 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 the inception of the left. Various groups coming together in the 19th century, in charge of social democratic federation, etc. Um, the working class voice. The voice of its experience, its everyday experience, um, and the voice of, of, of its structural location, where it was located in in, in a society in the you know in the, the, the uh, heyday of industrial capitalist society, was virtually absent from the discourses and narratives that were so that were emerging amongst these various leftist groups. Um, some groups, um, indeed, social democratic federation, officially excluded working class people from um, their um, hierarchy.
3: How did they so, do it? Just as a matter of interest, how did they do that?
7: Well, they, well they simply didn't for um, candidature, and they didn't invite them to meetings, and they took no notice
3: of, of what they said. This is the and, ultimate Fabianism, isn't it? That socialism is something that um, upper and middle class people will dole out like medicine uh, in, uh, in white coats in a lab.
7: Yes, you can use that analogy. I think it's quite a good one. Possibly a better one is is that they simply use the the working class to populate their their vision. They have a vision of society. They have a vision of a better future and a better brave new world, as Huxley said. And the working class there are, are, are just there populated. And if you don't agree with them, if you don't say, well, you know, we want a different world. We want the world to be better for us. We want the world to be better in a different way. Then, of course, you're systematically excluded. I had this experience in academia, 30 years in academia. Um, I'm the son of a a working class um, industrial plumber from a pit village in the county Durham. And no matter how good you were, no matter how many books you wrote, no matter how many Contributions you made to the discipline, you were sort of politely tolerated. Okay, Steve, that's very interesting. Thank you, but you won't—you get nowhere near the canon. Your ideas aren't reproduced, they're not celebrated. And in some cases, they're, they're met with hostility. So I was speaking from personal experience with, you know, Simon Winlow and I started to research this, looking at the birth of the left, as all of these, you know it as well as I do, there's disparate organizations coming together, eventually forming through the independent labor party, forming the labor party. And it seems as though this is simply how it's been from the very beginning. That's why we called it Back to the Future. So what we now is a return to its
3: Now, I'm surprised uh, that you think uh, it goes that far back, Uh, but I'll bow to your superior uh, academic knowledge uh, on that. I mean, I was just thinking, in the days when uh, Ernest Bevin uh, was a power in the land and uh, Lothar and uh, all these other uh, trade union giants were a big fish, big, powerful fish in labor politics, Uh, They would have been unlikely uh, to go along uh, with the arc of Labour's narrative, which has ended up with Labour uh, campaigning to keep freedom of movement of cheap labour into the British labour market as some kind of article of faith. I don't think the old-style British trade union leaders would have gone along with that.
7: No, I would agree with you, because I think in 19, the 1940s was a blip in this process, the 1940s after the war, when the middle-class elite regarded the working class as, you know, the salt of the earth who'd helped them win the war, so they owed them something. And we had this landslide victory, we had this flood of working-class MPs who'd been active throughout the 30s, but don't forget them, the MacDonald and Henderson Um, foibles of the early 1930s where they they made a mess of everything. So they were coming back, and in the the 1940s, they they flooded back into the Labour Party and started to establish a narrative that was at least partly based on working class experience, working class vision, and working class needs. So that was the, you're talking about the period that was a blip, but ever since then, and you know as well as I do, of course, uh, Crossland's, the future of socialism changed all of that, when he started talking about the middle class cultural values being just as important as working class needs. And so from the late 50s, that began to change again and move back towards its origins. So I would agree with you, but I think we're talking at a time in history when there was a real change. And look what happened in 45, National Health Service, state owned related, pensions, education, everything. That was the radical decade for me, not the 1960s, which was just a flurry of drugs and sex. That, that we, we're living now still in the legacy of National Health Services and the last bastion of, of that wonderfully radical decade, so I agree with you, that was, that, was a, that was a different time, but now it's starting to return to its origins before that period.
3: You used uh, the word there, culture, um, and that's my takeaway from the election campaign so yeah. far. The, uh, the Labour Manifesto undoubtedly contains a number of proposed reforms that would be beneficial to working class people, particularly the promise to build a million homes in the course of that parliament, yeah. uh, which, would, uh, which would benefit working class people massively, perhaps more than any other uh, proposed reform, and the increased support for the National Health Service is another uh, reform that clearly benefits working class people more yes. than anyone else. However, my take Certainly in the West Midlands, I'm there every day, on the street every day, uh, talking to hundreds, literally hundreds of people every day. Uh, I can't speak for the whole country, but in the West Midlands, Uh, Labour's problem uh, with the working class is a cultural one. The the working class people don't feel uh, that Labour are the same as them. They don't look like them, they don't sound like them, They don't have the same preoccupations, infatuations somehow, identity politics and so on. Uh, The climate change, Paul Mason tells us this is the climate change election. But literally no one, no one in the West Midlands has given a second thought to the climate change agenda because they're actually shivering with cold in their houses, unable to heat themselves, choosing to feed or heat uh, their old mother and father living alone in, a, in, a, in, in an inadequate housing and so on. Uh, yeah. the, the, the gulf between the lived experience of the working class base that Labour used to sit on, rest on, get elected on, yeah. and the London, university educated, metropolitan, elite liberal political class that Labour has become, seems to me bigger than it's ever, ever been.
7: Yes, I think so. But again, this is a return to its origins. These are the narratives behind the the, the Labour Party at the beginning. Don't forget that uh, Sydney Webb's, even the Clause 4, was about outcomes. It wasn't about power. It was about people getting the fruits of their labor, but they're not making investment decisions and controlling the economy themselves. Even that was about outcomes. When you talk about the Green Party, I think you're absolutely right. The, 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 the Green narrative suffers from a, a, a huge problem, which is that it has failed consistently to put livelihoods at the front of its agenda. So say Give up fossil fuel, give up cars, give up this, uh, that and the other. Working people will say, well, what will I do for a livelihood in the midst of all this? So by failing to put that at the front of their narrative, again, it's, uh, as you say earlier, alienated working class people. Now, the other thing we found was, was that identitarianism, which was the big problem, the weaponization of various cultural issues such as racism, sexism, and um, homophobia, uh, being used as sticks to hit working people over the head with them. I think 2016, after the referendum, was a huge source of social media. Now, I know you use social media. I don't so much these days. I was virtually driven off Twitter. it. Um, the, 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 the hostility shown by what you call the metropolitan middle class. I don't know if they're metropolitan. I think they're all over the place. But I guess probably right as a metaphor. Um, that the hostility was almost eugenicist. Was, you know, Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables, they're almost talking about wanting this people to, older people to die. Off.
3: Well, some of them or were them. openly, uh, you know. Yes. Uh, keep yes. looking at your watch, there's another uh, Brexiteer has died because they're all yes. old, thick, yep. ignorant, white, racist, racist homophobic, Seven. misogynistic. I mean, yep. I, I mean this, this narrative, apart from being... Utterly, completely wrong is, of course, driving more and more people away from those that are issuing out these insults. You know, uh, you're 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 all these things, but hey, vote for me.
7: Yes, and uh, Owen Jones, uh, I think, writing in uh, it might have been the Guardian. I don't know what it was. Uh, I I don't read it uh, these days. But but he said uh, two weeks before the election, just the other day oh, perhaps we've got this wrong. We we, we we ought to stop harassing people who voted Leave, people from working-class areas. I they, we need their did. vote. I, I two didn't weeks, read it. This is two weeks, two weeks before, before the election. Day. Yeah. Yes, it, yeah, they spent three and a half years calling them xenophobes, racist, thick, ignorant, and, and, and um, you know, w- w- other words that, um, that we better not repeat on
3: the Well ideas. Well, he has even less uh, uh, excuse because he wrote a, a whole book called Chav's, on, the, yeah. on this very subject, and yeah. he wrote a column just before the referendum campaign started in 2016 advocating yeah. Brexit. Yeah. He did a vault fast so complete that the rest of us who followed his original advice suddenly became part of the basket of deplorables. Absolutely, and so did Mason. Mason was
7: shilling for leave a few years ago too. I mean, Larry Elliott is the only journalist who's who's stuck to his guns. So what does this mean? This means that it's part of the lingua franca of liberal media. And to keep your job in media, you've got to to have a go with Brexiteers. You've You've got to put Brexiteers in that bracket. It seems quite obvious to me that that, that such an incredible vote far is, is, is the product of, of, of peer pressure. It's the pressure of the work. You don't know what they believe. And one of the things I always admire I'm not bullying you at being judge, one of the things I always admire about you is with your honesty and you stick to your principles. But these people seem to blow with the wind, and that wind certainly seems to align with um, mm. the, the, the editorial policies of, of the media in which they work.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as Groucho Marx said, these are my principles, but if you don't like them, <coughs> yeah. I have others. <laughs> others uh, <yeah. laughs> now, uh, what does all this mean uh, in practical terms? I used the phrase, it was uh, uh, deliberately uh, baroque, uh, yeah. the emboers was of the left and the proletarianization of the right so that now boris 49% of working-class people are going to vote for Boris Johnson only 17% of working-class people are going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn that means that the twice that because Corbyn's on roughly 34 at the moment between 30 and 34 that means that half of his vote is coming from non-working-class people. Now, that might be fine, because originally the idea was that we'd have a mass labor movement of working-class people and allies who were not working-class, the likes of Mr. Benn, Mr. Cripps, uh, Mr. uh, uh, um, uh, Crossman, and so on, who were not working-class, but were allies of the working-class. But that all got turned around, didn't it? Well, I think it did.
7: I think, <clears throat> OK, 49% are, are voting for Boris Johnson, but how many of that 49% are not voting for Boris Johnson as much as voting against what they think Jeremy Corbyn represents mm-hmm. and probably think wrongly, because I don't think Corbyn's such a bad bloke. No, that's right. Um, I don't think he's entirely in the pockets of the metropolitan liberal left, if we want to call them that. Um, uh, So I think they're they're voting negatively, and the problem is that we're living not just in the era of post-truth, we're living in the era of negative politics. You're voting for somebody because you don't like the other. And don't forget, in 2016, now don't quote me on this, I think it was 34% didn't vote. Yeah. Now, I think a lot of that, you know, I don't know exactly how many, I'm not a political scientist. Well, there'll be so.
3: more, there'll be more this time, because it's going to be dark yeah. at half past three, and it's going yeah. to be bitterly cold. Yeah,
7: yeah, yeah, certainly older people, and people. And, and some people uh, with kids might, might not bother turning in, but, but that certainly, 34%. It, I where, I, would imagine I that am, that there'll not be more
3: than 60% people voting. Yeah,
7: yeah, I think that's 34%, and whatever it is this time, the percentage of that percentage that were constituted by working people I think was very high. And these are the people that Labour are not getting through to. Some people are drifting to the right, and you know yourself because you read our book uh, three years ago, that some a minority, not not an electoral force, but a minority are drifting to the far right. So that sort of area from the centre right to the far right, you're seeing this drift into that space of, of, of former Labour voters. And we can't afford to lose these people. We can't afford people to become cynical and stop voting. There's always been a, a large percentage of, of uh, well, not a large percentage, I mean, it was very, very small in 1945, wasn't it? In when I mean, we had clear messages when, as you say, even the middle class members of the Labour Party or allies of the working class, they talk in the working class language, they talk about economics, they talk about jobs, they talk about prosperity. They didn't harangue them about residual cultural prejudices. Now, don't get me wrong, we must get rid of these cultural prejudices, but that's an educational issue, it's a cultural issue. If we stick to the politics that affect us, all politics about the issues that affect everyone, national health service, jobs, prosperity, and yes, the Green New Deal is important, but you've got to somehow inject public money into the system to create a job guarantee programme. I'm very keen on the modern monetary theory. Um, um, do, you think the Labor, do you think
3: the Labour Party is savable if they lose this general election? I personally don't. I think there'll be a need for a new uh, working-class uh, political force because uh, if Jeremy Corbyn couldn't do it, I'm assuming that he won't. Of course, I hope yeah. that he does. Uh, but if Jeremy Corbyn can't do it, Emily Thornberry, Lady Nuggie, certainly ain't going to do it or even try to do it.
7: No, I, I, the, the thought of these people moving back in, in, into the, the leadership is horrific. I mean, i would be honest with you, I resigned last year when John McDonnell accepted the fiscal credibility rule, which give, puts bankers in charge of how much public spending we can have. Uh, it was a, that's a nonsense. So, so I, I resigned. Well, I've got something... Com- argument in my ward branch.
8: <laughs> I've, I've, <laughs> and, got, and, and I've got
3: something coming along very soon. I hope you'll yeah. join us in it. Professor Steve Hall, Emeritus Professor of Criminology, on his article, Back to the Future, on the British Liberal Left's Return to Its Origins. A fascinating man, great writer. I urge you to read that article. Uh, Now, I'm joined by Sean Atwood, who's an author and speaker, and the book that he has written, judging by its cover, I know you shouldn't, Georgia book by its cover, seems to zero in on some of the culprits uh, that I have in my sights. Also, Bush and Clinton, the body count, the Clinton body count, all the mysterious deaths and disappearances, silences that have somehow overcome so many of the people who have been involved in the crimes of Bush and Clinton, Mr. and Mrs., and of course, because he's an expert on them, he's an expert on Jeffrey Epstein. He is Sean Atwood, and he joins me in the studio now. Sean, thanks very much for coming in. Let's, let's speak about your book first, and then I want to take advantage of your encyclopedic knowledge of the Epstein
2: affair. I served six years in Arizona State Prison, and I started writing about the prison industrial complex, Then I moved over to the war on drugs. That led me to Iran-Contra. So this book, first chapter, is about Linda Ives, mother of one of the boys on the tracks. Two kids, they'd seen a CIA drug drop, I believe, and they had been killed and laid down side by side on the railway tracks. The medical expert who was working for Bill Clinton, who was governor at the time of Arkansas, said they'd smoked so much weed, they'd gone into a psychedelic trance Fallen asleep, side by side on the tracks, and the train had run over them. Complete and utter nonsense. So the book takes you through numerous victims of the Clintons all the way to a Jeffrey Epstein at the end.
3: I need to ask you, because the audience will, what were you doing for six years in the Arizona prison system?
2: As a young person, I got interested in the stock market at 14. At 16, I was already trading it. Made a couple of million in the stock market in my 20s. I had no common sense or emotional maturity whatsoever. Started to throw Manchester-style rave parties with it and had people smuggling ecstasy over from Holland. So I was knowingly breaking the law, take full responsibility. America was good for me. SWAT team smashed my door down and I ended up in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail, which has got the highest rate of death in America. Mm. National Geographic Channel, they did my "Banged Up Abroad episode. They researched... 62 people died in that jail around the time I was there, over a five-year period. People looking at Epstein, they're saying, you know, how can this happen? How can people be killed in, in prison like this? They would kill you for $50 worth of heroin where I was housed. I've got videos of the guards murdering mentally ill prisoners. And these guys had hardly committed any serious crimes. And afterwards, those guards were actually given promotions and pay rises by the sheriff. People get killed by the guards. The guards don't intend to kill them. It goes too far, and sometimes the guards will string them up, make it look like a hanging, a suicide, just so they can get away with it.
3: Well, that brings us to Epstein, doesn't it? Because uh, the official narrative to date, it may change, is that uh, Epstein committed suicide. And it just so happened that there were a very large number of powerful people very grateful to him for that, because they were facing, had he stood trial again, uh, this time for his life, uh, a great deal of damaging testimony may well have emerged. Uh, so, deal with that point first and then I'll ask you uh, how credible you think uh, the official story about how he committed suicide actually is.
2: Well, not just testimony. The lead investigator on the case, Joseph Ricurry in the Florida Police Department, he didn't trust his superiors. Joseph Riccari died mysteriously in his early 50s. He was completely healthy. It was a complete shock to his family. So he handed his files to another cop out of Florida, John Mark Duggan, because he thought that if this went to the top, it would just get covered up. John Mark Duggan fled to Russia, and he has recently looked at the stuff that was given to him by Riccari, and there are videos, sex tapes... Taken by Epstein. Now people said, is this guy telling the truth? How can we confirm this? I had an author friend who was in Russia at the time, who I've worked with for years. We write about the Colombian cocaine cartels, Ron Chepsiuk. He went and visited John Mark Duggan and looked at the sex tapes and they were so horrified by what they saw. They stopped watching, but they saw people that they recognized, but they've not yet released those names.
3: Of course, uh, the parade of people going in and out of Epstein's townhouse uh, the biggest in Manhattan, uh, which he got for precisely zero dollars uh, from uh, from the Wexner uh, Empire, uh, is uh, is quite uh, remarkable. One wonders what all these ex-presidents, would-be presidents, former prime ministers, aides to former prime ministers like Mandelson and Alistair Campbell, and so on. One wonders what these people saw in this Mr. Epstein. What do you think it was? What was the attraction?
2: The attraction in Epstein, the allurement, the enticement, I believe, was him bringing people in, manipulating them into thinking, you know, they were just going to get a massage from someone and then getting them into this thing whereby the massage is extended into sex acts with trafficked girls. So he would get this. Which he's taping which he's taping. I've gone over all the police reports. The police found cameras throughout the property in clocks, multiple victims. Even in the bathroom. Multiple victim statements have said that he was taping these people. So it looks like a blackmail operation.
3: A blackmail operation on behalf of himself for power and influence or on behalf of state actors?
2: I believe that he was in deep with the intelligence agencies on the way here i was reading the assassination of robert maxwell you know plenty about him and how these operations are constructed they get the goods on the most powerful people around the world and use that as leverage over them because once you've got been filmed with a minor in a sex act there's no coming back from that
3: intelligence uh, agencies have always uh, sought what the russians call kompromat they've always gathered uh, intelligence from honey traps and so on. But this would appear to be, if you'll forgive the pun, the, the mother of all honey traps, the mother of all compromat operations, because uh, we, we have President Clinton. We have would-be President Hillary Clinton. We have uh, Peter Mandelson, Alastair Campbell, Ehud Barak, the former Prime Minister of Israel, a whole parade of rich and powerful people. Uh, in the United States. It's impossible that one of the intelligence agencies benefiting from this would not be the American intelligence agencies themselves don't you think?
2: Well if you go back to Maxwell he was spying for the Mossad so you know it's not clear yet.
3: I I mean no doubt that uh, Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell are connected to Israel but That's small beer compared to the U.S. intelligence apparatus.
2: Indeed, and my research, going back to Clinton, you know, George Bush was bringing the cocaine with Oliver North into Arkansas. Clinton was providing the state security. And you asked about what was the attraction for these elites with Epstein. Clinton's not a hard one to hook. If you go back then, he was hammering the cocaine himself. His brother Roger was arrested for doing a cocaine transaction. And on the record, he said, Brother Bill's got a nose like a vacuum cleaner for this stuff. There were multiple sexual assault cases settled out of court from around the time Bill Clinton was governor. He was a sleazeball from the go. That's why the CIA was bringing it into Arkansas. They knew he could, they could manipulate him like that. And um, these are testimonies and not come from conspiracy theories. These testimonies are coming from the state police, the Arkansas state police, the people who are still alive. Not in the Clinton body count, because some of them ended up in the Clinton body count. Tell
3: us about that, because it is, I mean I'm not myself one of nature's conspiracy theorists, but it is a very dangerous pastime to have gotten close to Bill and Hillary Clinton.
2: It is. If you look at the people who were working for them, so they were, the state police, the Arkansas state police, were driving Bill around so he could have his sexual liaisons with various women. Some women he was promising them jobs, tell him to come to hotels, and that's where alleged sexual assaults occurred that ended up in out-of-court settlements. These guys, the state police, were taking him to, like, the Mainer, Arkansas area where the state police were protecting the cocaine coming in. So this was highly sensitive information back at that time. Some of them who were blowing the whistle early on, you know, horrific things happened to them, horrific things happened to... uh, Larry Nichols was an insider who was working for ADFA, which was the Arkansas State Development Finance Authority. And he said when he blew the whistle, um, his life was threatened multiple times, even to this day he fears for his life. And he said they were washing through ADFA, which Bill Clinton had advertised as an entity that was going to boost employment for Arkansas. They said Larry Nichols said they were washing up to $100 million worth a month of cocaine money that was coming in. And to get that money out, Adford was giving loans that were never paid back. To get a loan, you had to apply through Rose uh, law firm, Hillary's law firm, and pay them uh, money as well. So they were all deeply in the mix. And all
3: kinds of people, even as late as the ill-fated presidential run of Mrs. Clinton, have come a cropper, haven't they? Yes. And people that were potentially involved in the leak of uh, Democratic party emails and so on, kind of things that are now routinely uh, and falsely blamed on on Julian Assange and on the Russians, but were in fact from Democrat insiders. Some of them have just come to very untimely deaths.
2: Hillary Clinton has no morals whatsoever. Anyone who stood in the way of their rise to power has been dealt with. You can look at from Vince Foster to the people who Bill had allegedly sexually assaulted. Hillary tracked them down. She had investigators track them down. Not to, you know, find out who Bill was being unfaithful with or have sympathy for these women. These women were terrorised as well to keep silent so that Bill could rise to the presidency.
3: And rise and indeed he did, though she was unable to uh, repeat the trick. Finally on Epstein... Uh, Where do you see this story going? Because on the face of it, it's a simple case of suicide, and now there will be no trial. Justice will not be done, but his estate might be worth uh, suing privately, so some of the victims will get compensation. Will that be the end of the matter? You see, I ask because tomorrow night uh, on British television, one of the victims, Uh, of Allegedly a prince of the British royal family uh, amongst others is uh, Doing uh, what will be I think a blockbuster television interview is this going to run and run or will it run into the
2: sand? It's going to run and run it took a small dip and then Prince Andrew and his blabbermouth just rose it to all-time records I've poured over the statements from Virginia and God bless her. She's such a brave person she alleged that she had sex with Andrew three times. The third time was an orgy with underage girls on the paedophile island. These girls were f- procured from Eastern Europe. They couldn't even speak English. Epstein was bragging these are the easiest girls to get because they can't even speak English. I believe they were procured by Jean-Luc Brunel, who should be a letter. to see in the co-conspiracy right now with Galen Maxwell as B. Those guys should have international arrest warrants issued immediately. And it's beyond, you know, I can't possibly comprehend how anyone else could be accused in court of such serious offences. And what happens to Prince Andrew? The worst thing that happens to Prince Andrew, he, he loses his birthday party. He's got to stand down from his charities. Anyone else would have been SWAT team raided. So it's going to keep going.
3: These are all denied, of course, uh, by him. Uh, He has not been charged uh, unusually. Uh, He has not even been interviewed, I think, by the British police, certainly not under caution as a suspect. Uh, But they are allegations, and he does deny them. I need to make that uh, clear. Do you think Virginia Roberts will prove a plausible uh, witness Uh, on British television this week?
2: Anyone who had doubts about Virginia Roberts, most people, that has been completely cancelled by Prince Andrew's lies, inconsistencies, and his general demeanour and his lack of empathy and sympathy and remorse and the idiotic things he said on that BBC interview. I think the whole world right now has got bated breath and they just can't wait to see what she says tomorrow. Sean, uh,
3: it's been a pleasure. Uh, I'm definitely going to read your book. I hope the graphic of it is up. There it is. <laughs> Clinton, Bush and CIA conspiracies. You've definitely touched all bases uh, on, that, uh, on that front page, uh, I must uh, say. <laughs> uh, so if you've got a point of view on any of these, let me know. 02077 Or you can uh, tweet me at Galloway at RTUK. News. Now, I was... Thanks very much, Sean. Just uh, uh, sit there for a moment until the break, if you don't mind, and if we get any calls on uh, your subject, you might be able to uh, respond uh, to them. Now, I need to finish on this day because I only got through the Rosa Parks, uh, the uh, momentous day in 1955, but there is more. In 1990, on this day, Britain was linked to Europe for the first time when construction workers drilled through the final wall of rock to join the two halves of the tunnel. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, this linked uh, the UK with France. It took another four years before the tunnel was finally completed and at a cost of £12 billion, double the original estimate. Plus ça change. Well, loose change, actually, £12 billion is nothing now. Uh, the Uh, Which will shave six minutes of the journey to Birmingham by train is now going to cost 103 billion. Now, skipping back several decades, it was on this day in 1943 that the Beveridge Report was published, the blueprint for what was to become the National Health Service, and which has become a real point of contention in the present general election in the UK. It was, of course, a Labour government, which in 1948 introduced the NHS and medical care for all free at the point of need. Further on in the week, it was on December the 7th, that yet another event to change the course of history took place in 1941, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and brought America belatedly into World War II. And on the 8th of December, 1989 former Beatle John Lennon was shot dead in New York City let's hear from John in Gravesend go ahead John
9: very good evening to you George Uh, I'm greatly concerned about the border force or the lack of it and the general security in this country me too and I don't understand why the military? i forces myself. You have spearhead battalions that are there for an emergency and are on standby for a period of time. I don't understand why at certain periods of the year, certain selected units can to, uh, be, be given the status. All the all the uh, soldiers being given trained and be given the status of special constable. And they still retain their uniforms and rank and everything else. They go to Ramsgate, Margate, Hartlepool, wherever. And they, they perform uh, border duties. But they're given the powers of special constable. It also gives the guys a chance if they, after they've finished their military career, of moving directly into the police force. Well, they say that them dual roles.
3: They say that great minds uh, think alike, uh, John. Uh, I was, myself, this very morning thinking this exact thing. Uh, It's quite clear to me, first of all, that the border is not actually uh, guarded. Uh, There are, uh, I think, at least 10,000 miles of coastline. Almost none of it is guarded. And even uh, most of our ports are not guarded. Even our airports are not properly guarded. When was the last time anybody watching or listening to this show was pulled over by customs and their baggage uh, searched, for example? And I was thinking of it in the context of the so-called war on drugs that never actually really was a war at all. Nobody actually tried to stop uh, the, uh, the entry into this island, which should be uh, a benefit to us being an island, but only if you actually control who and what comes into your island. And we have not been doing that. Secondly, it's quite clear uh, that we need far more people, particularly in areas that are obvious, potentially, uh, potential targets for terrorists, and we need them uh, from time to time, and uh, especially when threat levels are high or anniversaries loom or events like the killing of al-Baghdadi take place. It was just very, very good luck, you know, that that, a police car was coming across the bridge precisely at the point that these men were wrestling on the ground with this guy. Uh, It was not intelligence-led. They had no idea uh, that this man was going to do what he did. It was good fortune that the police were there and that they acted so efficiently. But nobody else was on the bridge. Uh, We should be using X-forces people as well as getting our police numbers up as well as better quality intelligence services, democratically accountable. Otherwise, we're not really fighting this terror threat at all, John, are
9: we? No, and no, I, I think, I think the, the, the soldiers would be glad of that change of, of role. They'd be given, you know, as I said, properly trained, special power, you know, special constable powers, uh, because I've always joked if the Wehrmacht had come across the channel unarmed in rubber boats, we, we could have been invaded without a shot being fired in the Second World War. I mean, it's a joke. People, keep, people just walk into this country.
3: Well, a, I've, got, uh, well. I've, I've got my first novel called Queensway on this very subject coming out uh, in the next couple of weeks. You'll enjoy it, John, if you let our people know your address. I'll send you a copy. Uh, for review. It, uh, it's counterfactual history. It presupposes that exactly what you just said actually did happen, and the Hitlerites landed without opposition uh, at the uh, southern coast of Britain. Thank you very much indeed for an excellent uh, call. Here's a good one from Lawrence Latham in Sutton Colfield. I was in there in Sutton Coldfield just yesterday. Uh, Hi, George. Why weren't the ex-prisoners attending Such a sensitive meeting, not searched on entering the building. Enjoy your program. Lawrence, what a blindingly brilliant point. All these offenders, ex-prisoners, people on license, and a terrorist on license, were not even searched at the door, not even a pat down, never mind an x-ray, never mind a wand, somebody can go in to the fishmonger's hall, in the city of London with two knives and a gun and a fake suicide vest and nobody notices? Deeply shocking, I must say. George, following up a news item on last week's show, the BBC apparently edited out laughter during the Leader's Question Time program. It came after an audience member posed a question to Boris Johnson about whether he could be trusted. I wonder, George, if you had been on the spot like Boris, Would you have thought that question was a reasonable one for the BBC to select when the Prime Minister is there to be interrogated? No politician is going to reply that, no, I can't be trusted after all. Love the show, says Tony Gettliffe in Leicester. That was uh, one of a long series of disgrace that the BBC has brought itself into. Uh, in this general election campaign, and indeed long before it. Over the last four years, at least, the BBC has been plumbing ever lower depths. And it would be an abuse of this platform for me to say what I plan to do about that, but I will do shortly from another platform. I've still got a poll. What's the best counter-terrorism measure? You can vote on my Twitter feed, and there'll be a new poll right after the news which comes up right now.
8: Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. This is Dominic Carter, a political reporter in New York for Verizon Bio TV News.
4: This is Dr. Bill Honigman, progressive Democrats in America, PD, America.org. Hey, everybody. My name is Tim Black. Joe. This is Tom Longo of Gold Coast and
8: Guns. Hello, this is Benny Johnson.
5: Hi, this is Juanita Broderick, author of You'd Better Put Some Ice on That.
8: This is Jamal Thomas from the Progressive
6: Soapbox. Hey, this is Raheem from D.C.
0: This is Rachel Blevins, a correspondent with RT America, and you're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan.
4: When I'm waking up in the morning, I'm looking for what's on the queue for the day. iTunes default line with Nixon and Stranahan.
8: The wokest radio show for your wokest AM. These guys are the best in the business and experts when it comes to policy.
1: They're bringing you the top headlines with an angle that you won't see in the mainstream media.
4: Fault Lines is the greatest show on the radio. I enjoy immensely talking with Lee and Garland. They always treat me uh, from either side with due respect, and it's a wonderful conversation.
0: The best morning news show in America, Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lee and Garland speak truth to power from the depths of
8: the swamp itself, right here on Radio Spot
5: Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com.
4: Radio Sputnik News.
0: The second victim of Friday's terrorist attack on London Bridge has been named as 23-year-old Saskia Jones. She is a former Cambridge University student. The first victim to be named was 25-year-old Jack Merritt. Following the attack, the two main political parties in Britain's general election are blaming each other for the early release from prison of the terrorist, Usman Khan. Khan, who had served half of his sentence, went on a murderous rampage which was brought to an end after members of the public overpowered him. He was then shot dead by armed police after he revealed what turned out to be a fake suicide vest. The UK Ministry of Justice has also launched an urgent review. 74 other people jailed for terror offenses and released early are to have their license conditions reviewed. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson claims that scrapping early release would have stopped Khan. Labor is blaming budget cuts for what it called mischances to intervene. 28-year-old Khan had been previously jailed over a plot to bomb the London Stock Exchange in 2009. He was initially sentenced to indeterminate detention, which would have allowed him to be kept in prison beyond the minimum term. But in 2013, the Court of Appeal quashed the sentence, replacing it with a 16-year fixed term of which Khan should serve half in prison. He was released on license in December 2018, subject to what authorities described as an extensive list of license conditions. An Irish citizen who became an Islamic State bride has been arrested after arriving back in Dublin. While Lisa Smith and her daughter traveled from Turkey after being deported, arriving in Ireland today. She was arrested on landing and it is expected she will now be interviewed by police about suspected terrorist offenses. Plans have also been made for the care of her two-year-old daughter who was born in Syria but is an Irish citizen. Police in New Orleans say there have been 11 victims of a shooting incident in the city's French Quarter tourist hub. U.S. media quoted one officer as saying two people were in critical condition. No fatalities have been reported. The incident took place on Canal Street between Bourbon and Chartres streets at about 3.20 local time today. Police said on their Twitter feed that one suspect had been apprehended near the scene. While they later said the person's possible involvement was still under investigation and that no arrests had been made. Video footage from the scene showed numerous police vehicles cordoning off an area as forensic teams made checks while the French Quarter has been hosting holiday makers marking the weekend after Thanksgiving. On this weekend in 2016, a man was killed and nine other people wounded in a shooting on Bourbon Street. In June 2014, another shooting incident on the same street left one person dead and nine injured. People in China are now required to have their faces scanned when registering new mobile phone services as the authorities seek to verify the identities of the country's hundreds of millions of Internet users. The regulation announced in September came into effect today. The government says it wants to protect the legitimate rights and interests of citizens in cyberspace. China already uses facial recognition technology to survey its population. And finally, U.S. composer Irving Burgie, who helped to popularize Caribbean music with hit songs like day has died aged 95. His death was confirmed by Barbados Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley, who called for a movement of silence for the man who wrote its national anthem. He was best known for helping singer Harry Belafonte bring calypso music to the mainstream. The 1950s song Deo went on to not only be used in films, adverts, and even as a wake-up call for astronauts in space. The calypso hit featured in the popular film Beetlejuice and had been sampled by rapper Lil Wayne and singer Jason Derulo. His website says his songs have sold more than 100 million records worldwide. Well, that's all for Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn.
10: You're listening to Radio Sputnik
8: Telling the Untold Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves With George Galloway Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio
3: Who will use the most hairspray at the NATO summit in London? A. Donald Trump B. Boris Johnson C. Emmanuel Macron Get voting. That's poll number two on my Twitter feed. Now, calls for me and for Adam. Hashtag AskAdam If you've got a question that you want to put to either Adam or myself, now is the time. No point in bellyaching about his... Social media output. Here's the man ready to answer. <laughs> in a anything. proper forum, you've got to say 020 77982255. Here's Richard in Manchester. Richard, welcome. Good.
6: Good evening, George. Good evening,
3: Adam. Thank you Good for evening. having me on your show tonight. Welcome,
6: George. Um, I was a little bit disappointed at some of the things that you said tonight with regards to uh, Boris Johnson. Today I watched an absolutely remarkable interview with with, Ma, with Andrew Marr, and he had a sheet of paper, as he did with um, Nigel Farage, uh, a, f- a, few, a couple of months ago. And Farage picked him up and he said, look, I've come here for you to congratulate me, if you want to, on getting a majority to go back and uh, take my MEPs back to fight our cause in the EU and why don't you and he just kept, no I want you to answer this question and this question and the same thing, I don't know if you had time because I know you're a busy guy to watch it but it was an absolute BBC disgrace what happened today to the Prime Minister I am not a Conservative judge I've talked to you a few times i yeah. talked to you about my father being a coal miner, and being a socialist and having a lot of kids in the family yeah. and we were very poor but now Exactly what your last guest and yourself as an intelligent man said these elites, and we all know who they are Are now saying the 17.4 million people who voted we absolutely Stupid and I say to them. I had a good education My father gave me a good e- education and like you George you had the education of life But we didn't prostitute ourselves for money. We didn't prostitute our morals. We were taught to look after the people a little bit less better off than us, and certainly the poor people. And that's all gone by the board. And then Gina Miller comes on today to say to Sky News, and this was another disgrace, if you don't mind me, mind me saying so, that she is now a pollster, and look at these polls <laughs> and to tell everybody... I'm sure I trust any that-
3: poll conducted by her.
6: Oh, yeah. She, she's now got a, a, a poll, and she talks about algorithms. I don't think she even knows, with respect to her, what an algorithm is, but that was a word given to her before she went on the show. It's all
3: abracadabra to her. Sorry? Adam says it's all abracadabra to her.
10: Oh, exactly.
3: But George... I think, uh, Richard, I, I've got your point, and it's well made. Uh, I'll let Adam answer it first before I tell you what I think. Um, it's my take. Adam, that Boris Johnson has drastically underperformed in this general election and that his media interviews have been woeful, lamentable. What's your take?
10: Well, I agree with that, and I'll get to Boris in a second, but I think that far from pinning this on Boris, who's only been in there for a few months, I blame Roy Jenkins, I blame the national government of Ramsay MacDonald and Stanley Baldwin, and successive generations of ultra-liberal judges and barristers too busy slapping themselves on the back to realise that they were going to create generations of miscreants, terrorists, and other violent troublemakers, because in the liberal mind, compassion is shown to the criminal where I believe compassion should be shown to the innocent people who need to go about their daily lives free of all kinds of crime from the so-called petty up to the kind of terrorist atrocity we saw the other day. Now on to Boris. Yeah, Boris isn't the best interviewee, uh, he couldn't exactly go up in front of the Senate of the United States and talk about Iraq as you could, and frankly he couldn't stand before extremely hostile interviews as Farage did, even going back to the UKIP days when not necessarily all of the country knew who he was, but all of the media elite knew who he was, they hated him, but he could take it. That notwithstanding, I thought that Moore was quite disgraceful. It was. Less less than 24 hours after a heinous terrorist atrocity one about which many questions need to be answered and many new ways I would say going back to the old ways of thinking need to be re-examined but you've got to let a prime minister in that situation make a point it so happens that this atrocity happened during an election but the prime minister's role during such an interview the first he gave to any media outlet since the atrocity it needs to be about clarification and with more constantly interrupting uh it was a bit like he wanted to get the third best prize award for an impersonation of paxman intervening uh interrogating michael howard when he asked him the same question i think three dozen times or something but this wasn't that sort of occasion
3: the Andrew Neil substitute
10: award. <laughs> yeah? he, he, he clearly failed that one, because the thing with Andrew Neil he's a tough interviewer, one of the toughest in the business, but Moore was just almost a caricature of that. And I've, I've seen many of Moore's interviews, some of them have been okay, to be fair, but I just thought, let the man speak, then offer an alternative point of view in the course of the interrogation, but let the man speak, especially less than 24 hours after that
3: attack. Uh, Last word to our caller, Richard, are you still there?
6: Thank you very much indeed. That was what you two gentlemen have just said. You're telling the truth. These people are coming on and they're trying to stop people from voting. And they, she, actually voted, uh, she actually voiced an opinion that we want a hung parliament. And she was laughing as she said it. Please, she's saying to the electorate. Oh, don't they're desperate give up. for
3: a hung parliament. Yeah, that's true. Because it keeps because, the lawyers in charge. Yeah, uh, they don't want uh, Jeremy Corbyn, heaven forfend. Uh, nope. But they don't want Boris Johnson either. They want to steal Brexit from us. No. And that can, only, that can only be done, uh, or best be done from their point of view, uh, with a hung parliament. That's what they are absolutely determined to bring about. But I hold to my view that I expected Boris Johnson to be a far better communicator than he has turned out to be. Uh, it seems that all that expensive education... It doesn't buy you uh, necessarily a great deal of common sense, Richard. Thanks for the call. Let's hear from Daniel in Humberside. Go ahead, Daniel. Hello, George. Hi you there. On YouTube. Thank you. Uh, just kind of linked into the last
6: question, real. Just for regards to Labour. Yeah. Uh, my area is Humberside. So obviously got Hull, Grimsby. I think these are pretty much Labour strongholds. And, uh, no, no, I think, I, I,
3: I think Labour like... will lose seats in Hull to the Brexit party. That's my prediction. Yeah, and uh, the prediction as well in Grimsby, which I think has been a Labour seat since the 30s. Uh, the Brexit party um, may also win that.
6: Yeah, even the uh, Tories are pushing on. So, yeah, basically my question is, do you think the... Because it's kind of here, it's my dad voted for Labour, my granddad
8: did, mm-hmm. everyone did. They're the party, of the working class. Do yeah. you think Labour have lost the uh, British working class?
3: Uh, well, up to a point, uh, they definitely have. Of course, the working class itself has changed its uh, outward characteristics. Uh, yeah. It is, yeah. uh, of it is composed definition. of, yeah. uh, I call our workers in state and local state uh, employment. It is uh, composed of people in insecure, uh, temporary contracts, and even zero-hours contracts. It's not the working class, Daniel, that we uh, knew uh, in the past, gathered in big workplaces of many hundreds, even many thousands of workers. But the working class is still the working class. The definition of a working class person is a person who depends upon their labor to live who if yeah. their wage or salary uh, didn't come through, have nothing else to live on. Uh, and uh, there's people, undoubtedly the case that uh, a section of the industrial working class and the sons and daughters of that industrial working yeah. class have moved decisively away from labor in Humberside, yeah. in the East Midlands, in the West Midlands, in the northeast of yeah. England. We've had several calls over recent weeks in that parts of the Northwest, not the city of Manchester, but the surrounding area around Manchester, parts of South Wales, and not necessarily for political economic uh, reasons, because I hold to the view that Labour's uh, program would be more beneficial to uh, such people, Uh, but for cultural reasons. uh, They are repelled by Labour. They don't see in Labour. Anything uh, that relates to them, they don't look like or sound like or feel like or think like working class people uh, do in this country. That's my take. It's more a culture war uh, type of thing. Adam, your take on this.
10: Well, I think that's spot on. I was talking last week about tone and the famous uh, argument that Ted Heath and Enoch Powell, two conservatives, oh, yes. tone, had yes, yes. at the time. And it, it's very much like that. As a, Speaking from a musician's point of view, a lot of people misunderstand European classical music because they think that this, just because the mu- ...a piece, it's going to be performed in a certain kind of way. And anyone who frequents classical concerts or collects recordings as I do knows that the interpretation of that famous piece of music is as important and in some cases even more important because of the level of individuation than the notes on the score, which are merely signposts for an autistic endeavor. Now, Labour is not speaking the language of regular people. And there's regular people in all classes uh, because someone who's regular by definition is someone who's the norm rather than something heterodox. Labour have ploughed in, they've gone into this breach of heterodox thinking, heterodox speaking and heterodox actions that are just incompatible with the man in the Clapham omnibus to use an old phrase,
3: the man on the high street... They're quite popular on the Clapham omnibus. The problem well, because is Clapham's the, different than yeah, it used to be. <laughs> the problem is they're not as popular as they uh, should be, and once were, on the uh, Wolverhampton to West Indeed. Bromwich tram. Indeed, uh, That's their problem. Oh, uh, that's the huge problem. That's why the national opinion polls, uh, which are not insurmountable for Labour, I mean, there is a big difference, but it's not an insurmountable one, True. But elections, as you know, are fought in individual constituencies. And uh, therefore, they're all dominoes, if you imagine them, standing up uh, in, uh, in, a, in a vertical way right across the country. Now, what I get all day and every day is, first of all, I believe uh, an unjustified but real hatred of Jeremy Corbyn. No. I mean, uh, Tom Watson and co. were not making that up. Uh, maybe uh, it was them that helped create it. Uh, I don't rule that out. But all day people tell me they hate Jeremy Corbyn, and I, as a candidate standing not in his party, uh, am forced to <laughs> defend uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, from unjust attack. I don't. I identify with the justifiable attack on various things in Brexit in particular, but. Uh, I get hatred of Jeremy Corbyn throughout uh, the day and every day. I get hatred of uh, the apparent preoccupation uh, of Labour with Liberal nostrums, uh, Liberal on crime and punishment, for example, Uh, Liberal on issues of national security liberalism on issues of race and gender, politics, uh, which uh, crystallizes around the issue of free movement. You see, people say to me all day, I'm against large numbers of workers who are ready to work for less than me coming from Eastern Europe. They are white people, just like me, they say. So how am I a racist? Quite right for wanting to stop the labor market being flooded with people who for whom 2 pounds an hour would be a 100% increase in their wages now in the past a working class labor party would have leapt on that and they would have carried it all the way to the finishing line they would have been the champion of the workers yes they would have said We will not allow cheap labor uh, to undercut our uh, standards here in the uh, labor market and so on. Instead, labor seems to turn on the people and call them racist, even though everyone involved is white, right? uh... Call them racist for being concerned about that. And this is what I mean by the culture war issue.
10: Yeah, and it's one that runs very deep, because Labour has in fact declared this kind of war on, call it working class England, call it middle England, think of any other noun, adjective or verb to describe it, but they've declared war on it, and people can sense it, even if they can't articulate it, well no politician frankly could articulate it as well as that, but they feel it, and they know that something is rotten in the state of deepest Islington, and that this Labour party cannot relate to and in fact resents the people of the black country. The Northwest, of the Northeast, of South Wales, there's something where all you need to do is, frankly, listen to their speeches, their tone, the style of language they use, the issues that they think are holier than all others, and the issues which they discard and spit upon. It's not just the issues that they're discarding and spitting upon, it's the people, and this level of resentment shows, and no matter what people in these traditional labor, working-class think of the Tories or the Liberals or anyone else, the betrayal that Labour has wrought upon them is always going to be the most unkindest cut, because this was supposed to be the party of the factory worker whose job was stolen. It was supposed to be the party of the carpenter whose wages were stolen. It was supposed to be the party of the mother who wants to walk her children down safe streets while her husband is earning his daily bread. And Labour had been Trade all of these people, and worse than that, they call them every name in the book, in Parliament, on the platforms, on the BBC, on social media, and it's not going to surprise me at all if Labour are wiped out in these places that frankly helped to build the Labour Party.
3: It's a serious uh, problem. Of course, the Conservatives were the ones who cut the police force, and Conservative and Labour governments have been guilty of this uh, liberal uh, justice oh, yes. uh, system oh, that yes. we that we have. I mean so equally guilty. How, how does it? Uh, how does it happen that a terrorist prisoner can be released not even half but less than halfway through their sentence? I mean, does nobody you know think of that does nobody think that's actually highly dangerous thing to do because how can you be sure and does it turned out there was no certainty justified in any way? How can you be sure that, that uh, this man, uh, Usman Khan, has recanted on his previous intention to murder politicians, blow up the city, blow up Westminster in just six years? His reformed character in just six years? What nonsense is this?
10: Well, these judges are either busy calling normal people racist, even though Islam isn't a race, or they're afraid of being called it themselves. They're afraid of being called xenophobic, even though the man was born in England. And something that I entirely expected, but many others perhaps weren't, is that when I restated my long-held support for the reinstation of capital punishment, some of those who were most supportive of me were people on social who are Muslims. Some identified themselves that way to me, some from their names and even from their places of residence, it's obvious to any observer. Because in countries that have been the victims of war, been the big victims of civil strife, they know that a terrorist doesn't change its spots and that any time that you take to placate the terrorist is essentially a theft not only of resources but of peace and of life for the law abiding people and it just so happens that the vast majority of these liberals who have made these laws that are soft on crime and hard on the innocent people they happen to be Lo and behold, old white males, like the kind that Channel 4 makes fun of. So it's okay for an old white male to let a terrorist out of prison for the Channel 4 type of people, but it's not okay when an older white male votes for Brexit. At the end of the day, it all comes down to wanting to destroy tradition, and they use the race card to forward this agenda no matter what direction it's going in.
3: Dave, welcome. Hi, George. Thank you. Lovely to hear from you. What are you doing in Poland?
8: Ah, living here at the moment. Excellent. I am, uh, <laughs> yes, sir. I'm an American citizen, but I'm living in Warsaw, Poland right now. And uh, you'll have to excuse me. I'm a little bit nervous. First time caller, long time listener.
3: Just take your time, my friend. You're most welcome.
8: Of course. And uh, I just wanted to say, first of all, that uh, I just got a chance last night to watch your debate with. Uh, uh, Chris Hitchens. Ah, yes, and
3: the grapple in the <laughs> apple.
8: <laughs> that, that was a fun watch for anybody who hasn't oh, seen yes. it.
3: You know thousands <laughs> of people paid top dollar uh, to watch two British guys knock lumps out of each other in a, in a, in a hall <laughs> in New York. That's not bad, actually, is it? No, not at all. And it wasn't even the Epstein trial. <laughs> no, and Epstein hadn't happened yet, or at least his defenestration hadn't.
8: Anyway, no, that was a good go 15 ahead. years. Go ahead Dave. no, but the the reason I called was uh, because you were you had mentioned uh, Syria in the opening of your show. yeah, and uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up was you know when it comes to terrorism, especially in the United States, you know one of the things that uh, we don't often hear about because of our media being so horrible, is uh, regardless of fighting an ideology, you know, which radical Islam is. One of the things that Representative Tulsi Gabbard did do uh, was introduce the Stop Arming Terrorist Act in 2017. (laughs) She did? Yes. And uh, unfortunately, since then, uh, it's only had 14 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. And the Senate version, which was co-introduced by Rand Paul, has had zero co-sponsors, and I think that is one of the most ridiculous things for the fact that, one, we need to have an act that says stop arming terrorists introduced, and two, the fact that only 14 co-sponsors in the House and zero co-sponsors in the Senate uh, are on board with this bill. It, to me, that's just an outrage. And well, the I,
3: that- I, I do think that, that, I mean, this is first time call but it's an exceptionally good one uh, and it uh, demonstrates uh, beyond contradiction the utter hypocrisy of our political class uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to terrorism we are deeply compromised by uh, collaboration uh, and collusion uh, with terrorists according to uh, who they are fighting and I want uh, you may not have heard me say this And for those who haven't heard me say it, an apologies to those who have. I was once trapped in a lift with William Hague when he was the foreign minister of Britain. Imagine his horror of being in a lift with only me. (laughs) And the lift broke down. And he had no idea how long he was going to have to suffer uh, the slings and arrows of my uh, criticism. And I made the point to him, it was stuck there for long enough, uh, that I said, William, you've been wrong before. In fact, you've been wrong most of your life. But you've never been insane before. The policy you're following of arming and financing and giving diplomatic, political, and media support to the Islamist head choppers in Syria is literally insane. First of all, if it succeeds, it will put Al-Qaeda and ISIS... Well, ISIS wasn't then formed, really... They will put Al-Qaeda flags on the top of all government buildings in Damascus, next door to Israel, and on the Mediterranean. What could possibly go wrong? And secondly, if it succeeds or if it fails, all these people who you're putting knives in the hands of will one day come back here and haunt us. And I said portentously, as it turned out, even in this building looking for you and looking for me. And so it came to pass. Dave in Poland, thanks. Don't be a stranger. Call us anytime. James is in Carfilly. James, go ahead. Oh, hello, George. Hello, Adam. Uh, Hi, great then. to speak to you. Um, I, I was
6: just
8: wondering really about, um, obviously, you know, I don't really know anything about politics. here. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I don't know anything. But, you, you, you know, I was just wondering about um, uh, ranked choice voting like they have in sort of San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I was just wondering if that would, you know, be a good idea to sort of implement that, you know, at the general elections in this country, if, you know, if that would sort of solve... Yeah, uh, well,
3: I I am and all my life have been in favour of proportional representation. I think that Adam is against it, so let's give the floor to him first. Adam. Well, I've thought
10: long and hard about proportional representation because it has ups and downs a particularly ideological matter not that that would matter to me i'm not a particularly ideological man but i've thought of a compromise and again it goes back to the past rather than tries to reinvent the wheel the The notion that there's only one member of parliament per constituency is a fairly recent one. In fact, the last multi-member constituencies, they happen to be the university constituencies, were only abolished in 1948 by the Attlee government. I think one of the better forms of proportional representation would to allow constituencies to have more than one member. And this would allow you to have fewer constituencies, but more options and more styles of representation, within a constituency and I think this would be a way to preserve the directness of a first post the post system with whilst eliminating the kind of uh, uniformity and the unanimity of a first post the post system because if we were to go to something like party this proportional representation which is of the various kinds probably the best what it would mean is independent candidates who weren't part of a party would be sh- would be shafted. And I don't like that because I think that it really should be about a constituency getting to know their candidate over and above the party which they belong to. If they don't belong to any party at all, proportional representation is a huge disadvantage. It so, gives the
3: party leaders also uh, untrammeled power. They have pretty much untrammeled power anyway. Thank you, Blair it and Cameron. gives them uh, absolutely untrammeled power because yeah. they decide who's on the list and in what order.
10: Yeah. And if you were to imagine, look at the Mavericks in both of the main parties in recent years. There were people like Alan Clark and the unrelated Kenneth Clark, two Tory Mavericks from opposite ends of the Tory party. And look at Labour where you've had people like Dennis Skinner. And you, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Before there was Jeremy Corbyn, there was Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, I think that that's sort of a factor that people Why forget. Why do you dislike
3: him so much, Jerry O'Neill asks?
10: The reason I dislike him, it's to do, I dislike the politics. Ease of labor because I'm not a labor man, so that goes without saying. But the more interesting reason is again this matter of style, of language, of tone. I like a politician who's tough, and by tough, I don't mean that they could go up against Mike Tyson and have him crying in the corner. I mean rhetorically tough. I mean tough and robust in the defense of coherent and simple, straightforward positions. With Jeremy Corbyn, it's all ooing and awning, it's all very soft. Soft-spoken, it's all very frankly dismal. He speaks like an undertaker in pursuit of the hearse, and no matter what anyone thinks of it, I think that the, there'd be a lot of people out there who just don't like it at a stylistic well, he, he's level. Not,
3: he's not a great speaker, uh, but neither is Joe Swinson, and, ni- <laughs> and neither is Boris Johnson, as it turns out. Well, so, Boris... if it's a contest uh, about who's a good speaker, uh, he won't necessarily be in second place on that.
10: Yeah, the problem with Boris is he's a- Serious. He's not necessarily the most linear speaker, but he is an entertaining speaker, which is certainly half the battle. Swinson is just a bit shrill. Uh, I don't even know who the leader of the Green Party is, which shows you how much I care about that. Um, As for um, the other parties, again, I've criticised his tactics and will do so again, but Nigel Farage is good in a debate. He is good on a platform. Uh, He's not necessarily the most poetic speaker but he certainly hammers the nail which frankly Corbyn can't, Boris can't in an interview situation and I think that if one were to say the word nail and hammer to Swinson the Liberal Democrats would call me some sort of racist <laughs> uh, because obviously people who hammer nails aren't the kind of people that vote Liberal Democrat.
3: James thanks a lot uh, for your call. Uh, Clayton is from uh, Wisbeach Let's hear from Clayton. Go ahead Clayton.
1: Hi, George, how are you?
3: I'm good, thank you. Yep.
1: Yeah, uh, so just to give you a bit of context, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Labour voter, Labour supporter, but I never voted or supported Labour prior to Jeremy Corbyn, because against neoliberalism, and I didn't like the centrist uh, Labour Party, who was far too far centrist for me, because I'm on the left. Okay. I voted Leave. I'm a Leave voter. Um, but I do believe that the best way to get Brexit done and the best form to get Brexit done is to vote Labour and to have a second referendum. And the reason I say that is because I don't see that Parliament can adequately get through a Leave bill without a second referendum. And I believe a second referendum would vote Leave. And I just think that people being scared to vote Labour because they think it's a main option, I, I just, I, I'm not going with it. I honestly believe that a Labour deal with a Labour government and the second referendum is the way to go.
3: And how do you think your neighbours and workmates uh, feel about that? I mean, you, you're presumably worried about the fact that a very significant number of them appear to be unpersuaded of that view.
1: No, and, uh, the problem is, is I, I do think that the Brexit issue is affecting people and it's affecting them to vote um, way to the right of what they should be voting,
3: and voting for a- Oh, Ah, we've lost that call. Clayton, uh, thanks uh, for it. You got your point across very well. Uh, Donald Trump still in the lead, 56. Uh, Emmanuel Macron creeping up at 35, and Boris Johnson at 9, the hairspray. Um, I'd stay clear of central London, because there may be a mist, because <laughs> all... Uh, All three of them might well be uh, pressing the button.
10: What will Extinction Rebellion
3: say? What will they have to say about this? (laughs) Sue from Stafford says, I was shocked to find that the BBC showed that interview with Prince Andrew. Considering everything else they won't talk about. Then it occurred to me that it benefits the elitists because along with other disgraces, it's distracting marvellously from what the British justice system is doing to Julian Assange. What is Adam's take on this idea? Well, mine is, uh, to be candid, Sue, that you're attributing far too much strategic (laughs) skill to our rulers. Uh, We're not ruled by James Bonds. We're ruled by Austin Powers. Adam. Well, there's several
10: things there. First of all, I do think that the interview is a distraction, but not from Julian Assange, because in order to be distracted from something, you need to have previously focused on it, and no one in England, in Britain, is focusing on Julian Assange, sadly. Um, But I think it's a distraction from some of these other elites who are, frankly, more powerful in the political and financial world than the Duke of York ever has been. Think the Clintons, think Mandelson. And so, frankly, they threw the least political of all of Epstein means friends under the bus that's my take getting back to assange though uh, we should be thinking of assange on this day of all days because assange is a publisher a journalist a speaker an activist even if you hated everything wikileaks published you wouldn't be afraid to pass him by walking down london bridge and yet he's in indefinite imprisonment in one of the most gruesome prisons in this country designed for terrorists, and yet these liberal judges let the actual terrorist out to kill people. So let's just look at, l- look at it from an objective point of view, forgetting your thoughts on Julian Assange, who I happen to think is a hero of free speech, but forgetting that. Do, who would you rather walk next to on a bridge, in a, sit next to in a restaurant, come across in a dark alley. Julian Assange or the filthy terrorist whose name I won't even say. That says everything one needs to know about
3: the state of injustice. Bravo. Maybe the best statement you've ever made, uh, uh, Adam. Let's go to Nicola in Swindon. Go ahead, Nicola. Oh, I've
6: seen you lately, you've, you've tweeted quite a lot about, you know, Corbyn is not going to win we're wasting our time following him because he's not the right leader of the Labour Party. Uh, well, and on yet... the
3: latter point, I've never said any such thing. But the first point, you're right. Go ahead.
6: Well, you right, but, you, think, you know, if you do you not find that's a bit demoralizing for Labour voters? Well, they might uh, it depends think...
3: if you think I'm a liar or not. It depends if you think it's my job to lie to you and tell you that Corbyn is going to win.
6: But, you know, he's someone you sat next to in the House and do you not have any sort of loyalty and, and think, I mean,
3: Excuse you, me. You, do started, I you, do I not have any sense of loyalty? Are you actually having? When and I don't do lies. That's why you followed me all these years. It's why you're a regular caller. a regular a communicator uh, with me. So it, it may be demoralizing to you. It may be demoralizing to me. But I'm not going to tell you something that I don't believe to be true. And it would be a lie if I told you. In facts, in politics, I believe in the Lord, without question, and with absolute faith. But I don't believe in Jeremy Corbyn, even if I think feel- Lewis in, uh, in Norwich, or Ipswich, wherever he is. Unlike all these other commentators, uh, the luxury communists, I'm the only person that stood up to defend him from the charge of anti-Semitism. I'm even doing it to my own detriment on the streets of the West Midlands on a daily basis. Be gone with you, Nicola. You've got me angry. Sean is in Stevenage. Go on, Sean. <laughs> Good evening, George. Can, Good evening. can you calm down while I ask my you the My then? blood's up. Go on. I can tell. <laughs>
11: Wicked show, mate, wicked show. Me and the missus watch every week. I've even got my missus interested in politics watching you. Excellent.
3: I'm very, very glad to hear it. Uh,
11: Given your comments this evening, you were talking to that emeritus professor, I forget his name, and given what you and Adam were talking about and and your statistic that 49% of working-class people are going to vote Conservative.
3: And and only 17 are going to vote Labour. Uh, Yeah, yeah.
11: Uh, I mean, uh, it's disparate. Is there not now a case to say, right... We need to reorganise the Labour on a working class basis, remember yeah. what it was for, uh, built for, yeah. what it stands for, and taking Adam's comment earlier about clear message from politicians, telling the truth, talking with integrity, and just relaunch this. I'll, gi- I'll give Jeremy's due. He's brought half a million odd mem- or increased membership to half a million people, yeah. uh, which, is, which is quite remarkable. It's a great but, achievement, yeah, yeah. It is. But his performance has left me, because I am a Labour voter, but I voted Leave. I still believe in Leave, um, for various reasons, because I looked at what had happened in Greece. I believe in privatisation of natural monopolies and the nat- in the national infrastructure, run for the benefit of the country. And you can't really do that when you're in the EU. Uh, sure, Sean, are we actually
3: brothers country. from another mother? <laughs> every <laughs> syllable know, like. of every word you've said is exactly what I believe. <laughs> but I'm
11: thinking now, i grasp the nettle and say, Jeremy, if you're not, not going to kick all these 100-plus-odd MPs that think they can still live in Tony Blair's dream world of living on the coattails of Tories, go and be Tories, go away, and let's get back to what the vast majority of working-class people want for this country, which is a country which is r- run as much for their benefit, in fact,
3: more for their... Party ...that speaks directly to the working class a party which supports and positively embraces Brexit, a party which is economically and politically radical, but which is socially traditional, which runs with the grain of British society rather than damning British society with a whole string of isms and epithets uh, designed to uh, denigrate them, a party which rejects identity politics, a party which rejects liberalism. A party which rejects skiism and uh, extreme ultra-leftism. A party that is in the tradition of uh, the likes of uh, the late Mr. Ben, uh, Mr. Foote, Mr. Shore, Mrs. Castle, and so on. I intend to create such a party, and very, very soon, uh, Sean. And you sound like just the sort of chap who ought to join us.
5: We weren't all leaders Mm. on the programme, on the TV, on Friday. A man from Bristol... If it wasn't
3: politically incorrect, I would have said it was a seven dwarves debate. But go ahead.
5: (laughs) Well, yeah, go on. A man from Bristol sent in a question, said, would you use nuclear weapons to defend us if a nuclear attack was due? Mm. Now, the SNP said no, categorically. Pride, Cymru said no. Green said no. Lib Dems, yes. Tory, yes. Labour, if necessary. But my point is, if there was a first strike, would we want to blow up millions? Or if we'd been attacked and we wanted to attack back, we might not be able to. And the argument, really, that the people who want to retain Trident has always been a deterrent. In other words, it won't be used. Uh, but, you know, do to really, to people really understand the danger of these weapons? And if they were used, you know, it would probably be near the end of the world. Well, it would
3: be the end of the world. Of course, if we were launching our missiles, it could only be, presumably, uh, because others had launched nuclear missiles at us. We are a small island. Uh, we would be incinerated in moments and would no longer exist. So any retaliation? Would be the very definition of Pyrrhic. I'm I'm not uh, interested in uh, nuclear weapons, but I am interested in our defense. I'd rather use, as indeed several admirals of the fleet want to do, and other commanders, former commanders of the British Armed Forces, I'd rather use the hundreds of billions of pounds expended on Trident, which isn't, by the way, independent at all. You could not fire it without the can, uh, from Stephen, I think, and uh, perhaps not Stephenage earlier in the show, uh, we need to have a proper navy defending us as an island, and we can build our own ships without going out to tender once we've left the European Union, and we should do so. We need frigates, we need warships patrolling our war- currently have to defend ourselves at home. They need to be properly paid, properly resourced, properly armed, properly clad, properly housed, their families looked after properly. That's what I'd rather do with the money we're wasting on Trident. Uh, Thank you, as always, Norma. We only had one woman caller again today indeed for joining us from Adam and myself. A very good night to you all.